My name is Sister Prince, and today is December 5th, 1988, and I am conduct conducting an oral history interview with Deverne Calloway. The title of the exhibit is A Strong Seed Planted, and it's from a poem by Langston Hughes. And as a matter of fact, just to, to begin with, if you would read it, and we'll just give you a feel of what we're going to do. It's the one called Democracy. Democracy. Democracy will not come today, this year, nor ever through compromise and fear. I have as much right as the other fellow has to stand on my two feet and own the land. I tire so of hearing people say, let things take their course. Tomorrow is another day. I do not need my freedom when I'm dead. I cannot live on tomorrow's bread. Freedom is a strong seed planted in a great need. I live here too. I want freedom just as you. I see you're thumbing through some books. Well, yeah, it's just, it's just to jog my memory in terms <laughs> okay. of what you're going to ask. <laughs> I'm going to begin by asking you, even though, um, I, what part do you think Jefferson Bank played in the Civil Rights Movement in St. Louis? I believe that the Jefferson Bank, I guess we can call it an episode in one sense, and then we can call it an uh, affront or an onslaught, uh, onslaught of, uh, of anger and frustration because prior to that, um, overt act of placing pickets before Jefferson Bank itself, there had been a series of discussions with the bank in question, with other banks, uh, the Urban League, the NAACP Corps, and others had engaged in this, uh, what they considered a peaceful dialogue regarding the lack of black employees in banks. And so I feel that this was a, well, as a turning point in the pattern that had developed for trying to improve the black condition in the city that prior to that, there had been so many uh, efforts made in the uh, arena of, of just quiet dialogue, presentation of facts, presentation of the needs, and nothing had occurred. So Jefferson Bank was like a, a catalyst that uh, 
brought it sharply to the attention, the plight that they were trying to uh, depict. No black employees in the banks here and there. I think a few uh, uh, custodians and possibly a doorman at some bank. I, I don't recall you know, the exact details. All I know is there were no black faces behind the cages in the bank. And this was intolerable because there were black monies being handled in those banks and there had been black monies handled in, their, in these banks from their inception. And so, yeah, my answer to your question is that this uh, episode became a catalytic, catalytic force. And it also was like the firing of the gun at the begin of a beginning of a race the push for blacks to completely involve themselves in the political arena. We had made some gains in the political arena, but uh, they had not, uh, well, I wouldn't say sifted, but they had not come down to the level of each ward having total uh, control of his political destiny by having black representation. We had a couple of wards we had, which had black leadership, but then we had many other wards that had a predominant black vote, but no black leadership. So the Jefferson Bank it showed people that things could be done. And it was a successful effort in that people were hired in the banks. And that was visible. So to me, it was a plus and it was a beginning uh, to tie the aspirations to the movement that was generated by the effort at Jefferson Bank. Um, you were in the legislature at that time. I had just been elected. That was my first year in the Missouri legislature. We had uh, gone into session in January, and it had convened in June of that year. And so at the time when the Jefferson Bank demonstration occurred, I was not going back and forth to Jefferson City. I was here in the city, but uh, I had played the role of holding the uh, the house together and and uh, backstopping my husband and his forces who mobilized to go to Washington, the Grand uh, March on Washington in '63, and I was aware that the core people were engaging in, an, uh, uh, I suppose, an exercise in trying to determine what next after having uh, made some serious efforts to get the banks themselves to 
look at what the plight was and why the blacks were agitated. I was aware that that was going on. I think I attended some of the core meetings where the discussions went on, but I had no knowledge of the target date. The only news I, uh, the only way I knew about that was the evening television announcing that the core people had uh, moved toward the Jefferson Bank and were picketing the bank. And so at that point in time, as I said, I was holding the home fires there at the house and taking care of other matters in terms of the paperwork that my husband was involved with and I was involved with. So I did not have a direct participation in the decision of what date and what we shall do. Mm -hmm. However, I did on several occasions walk with the picketers at before the bank. I walked in the picket line. What was that like? Well, a time when I was walking, it was a peaceful demonstration. There was that was prior to the time where the when the uh, injunction had been given and people had uh, violated the injunction. This was simply a a peaceful walk carrying a sign uh, given the grievances. The uh, bank should employ black people. Uh, the black community was not pleased with the fact that there weren't any blacks. And so it was like a, uh, I suppose, like I walked in many picket lines, it was like others that uh, were designed to make a statement. That's what it was, making a statement. Were the people uh, who were watching peaceful also? Uh, we did not have, um, the couple times that I was walking the picket line, it was an acceptable thing. People passed in automobiles and uh, maybe some turned around and looked. But we did not have a, uh, a congregation of, uh, of spectators. Mm -hmm. We were just walking around the, around the bank. Because in, in some picket lines, in some cities, some awful, awful things can be said and yelled and was I said true. I don't remember that any of that ever occurred in the picketing of Jefferson Bank. It, Excuse me, did it occur in any picketing that you did? Not in any picketing that I did. I, I did uh, march in, in two or three picket actions where there were spectators. Yes. But I was never subjected, and none of the lines that I was in were subjected to a violent reaction of people who were on the outside looking in. And so, in other words, I have not been through that traumatic experience yeah. of having people uh, to ta uh, toss things at you or to physically strike you or any of that kind of action. Miss Calloway, how do you think that the uh from the expectations of a peaceful picket line at Jeff Bank, how do you how do you feel that it got to where it it got with the? Um 
Well, the whole, the whole of the uh, operation was designed as a confrontation. And I would think that the reason the, the picket line um, began to uh, go beyond the normal uh, limits of uh, picketing and was the fact that nobody was paying any attention. It was a picket line, and people were noting it as such. The picket line, they put a picket line around Jefferson Bank. Of course, there were some. Now, I was never uh, at the entrance to the bank. I was on the sidewalk around the bank. And uh, I would imagine that people who parked in the parking lot, they had been restrained from blocking the door, the picketers, from interfering with anyone going into the bank. Mm -hmm. And of course, when that kind of situation goes on and you're not interfering, then actually you're not you're really uh, causing too much uh, uh, reaction mm -hmm. because you're just some picketers with information uh, marching around the line. Now, you want to know how or why it maybe went into a little bit more uh, turbulence and as I said my reason uh, the reason I would uh, conclude is that the leaders began to get a little antsy after so many days of peaceful picketing mm -hmm. and uh, no response no response from the bank except to put on more security and to make sure that the police were there was no response to the organization mm -hmm. who had uh, inquired and made effort to, to, to speak with them. Mm -hmm. So because they were not getting any real response, I suppose the leaders had to make a decision. This will just go on as a, a peaceful picket line if we don't get some more um, response from the bank in terms of the issue that we uh, are raising. So it became adamantly, uh, I mean, uh, it, it was just uh, a necessity in a way that they go beyond the peaceful picketing in order to bring the bank the to the table. That's the whole idea, to bring it to the table. but. The peaceful efforts did not appear. They were falling on deaf ears, just like the, the correspondence that had been sent back and forth, the telephone calls which had been made. They were getting no response. So I suppose at some level, some of the leaders decide, well, we're not supposed to go inside the bank. Perhaps the time has come that we go inside the bank. The injunction, it said you could not go inside the bank. You had constrictions so on they, they took the next step. They took the step that was confrontational and uh, that was forbidden. Mm -hmm. uh, I heard a story that um, actually the uh, Guth Electric was across the street and they got their paychecks that day. 
And they wanted to get in the bank to cash their paychecks. That might have been part of it. It's that I, I was mm -hmm. not there on the yeah. day when that episode. Uh, but you were there. And, and being uh, newly elected in the legislature, being the first black woman, um, did that did that make a difference in what you could do or what you could not do uh, as far as civil rights on the outside your activities no i i want to tell you that we had our own problems in jefferson city when i went there uh, we were not permitted as black members of the legislature we couldn't live in the hotels there uh, there had been an arrangement out at Lincoln University prior to the time I went where the few black legislators who were there lived on the Lincoln campus or in the homes of some of the blacks who lived in Jefferson City. So this action at uh, Jefferson Bank uh, did not do anything uh, to my legislative uh, uh, purpose other than to make it very clear to me that we had to put some effort forth there in Jefferson City to change the things that were happening there. There, we even organized a, a picket line uh, gearing it to Jefferson City, which was where the one picket action that I participated in, where we did have onlookers and, and some chit-chat and, and conversation, but they, that was never uh, turbulent, and there was never any any bodily assault or anything of that nature. But the the Jefferson Bank thing was just a part in my own life, just a part of the techniques that have to be used if we're going to really make any headway in the problem. At that point in time, there was no uh, mandate. The law did not protect you if you went in and sat down in a restaurant and asked for some food. The law did not protect you if you went in to try and register in a hotel. There were restrictions in certain parts of the city regarding housing, and that was um, uh, the major grassroots gripe that blacks had, not having tellers in the bank was not high on the list of priorities for the average person. Average person who was trying to get a job was not going to become a teller in the bank. But the bank is a central a forceful power, um, what do you call it, uh, block in the structure of commerce and in the city. And so the better part of wisdom was that you also make your onslaught and your attack against the most powerful sources. It does not be satisfied was just writing letters and uh, trying to get all of them to pass a public accommodations bill for the city of St. Louis, but let's go for what 
my husband would have called, let's go for the throat. And that is the power source. And so, the, to me, uh, the Jefferson Bank incident in terms of legislative action was just one more action by the black community to let it forcefully be known that we do not want to continue living in the uh, constraints and restrictions of racial oppression. So you, it served as a catalyst for you also? Well, I guess so. I, don't, I didn't need a catalyst. I had been catalyzed. Well, you said that you went back and you really started... Uh, no, I didn't go back and do that. That was planned. I mean, uh, that, oh, that was had nothing planned. to do... Jefferson Bank, there's nothing in my uh, civil rights activity that I can hook on that if I had been no Jefferson Bank, I would not have done this because I had already a history of concern and uh, uh, what do you call it, a, a vision of the changes that ought to occur. So, so to me, the Jefferson Bank was just another step in the right direction. It did get a certain amount of attention from the media that, that nothing in St. Louis had gotten before. Right. And that, of course, was one of the reasons the uh, the thing was designed, because as I said, that a bank is is a powerful a powerful institution. So we had been picketing hot dog stands because they didn't let people eat uh, from the front, and you had to go around the back. And we'd been picketing grocery stores because they didn't have enough checkers or no blacks working in the stores, but. Gosh, when you hit a bank, then you're treading on some very powerful feet. So uh, that was part of the design for going after the bank because net result financially and economically was not too much of an impact. Uh, the combined salaries of all the people who eventually got hired would not be adequate to uh, to really make any kind of forceful change. But it was the symbol, the symbol. And the fact that the bank did not hire, but subsequently did. And so that began to open windows and to open uh, other areas of many um, places who were not hiring blacks. Thought about it in terms of do we want to go through that? Do we want to be picketed? And so letters and, and, and meetings began to accomplish some things that possibly they would not have accomplished had there not been a Jefferson Day. Uh, back to Jeff City and yourself and the public accommodations. Um, you said we. Uh, when I say we about the uh, uh, picketing and about the um, legislative uh, effort, I am referring to the few blacks who were in the legislature. There were uh, a major uh, legislator from St. Louis named Hugh White. 
and you had gone ahead of me and you white had been the prime sponsor of the public accommodations bill and there of course were uh, was a legislator from Kansas City black one and I think we had all of five legislators and uh, we who came after, I went along with another legislator, was elected at the same time I was, new to the legislature. And uh, we joined in the effort that Hugh White had already started. And I can recall that Hugh White was making his own one-man rebellion by tagging along pardon me, with uh, white legislators at night when they were going into what bars there were and drinking places and places where blacks were not welcomed, white legislators would take you white along with them. And they were, I guess, uh, he had been a um, an aviator in uh, in the World War. Tuskegee Airmen. Yeah, he was one of the Tuskegee people. And so these little uh, sorties that they would make at night were, I guess, tantamount to little uh, military actions that they were taking. Oh, last night we were down in the basement under the governor where they had a, a bar. And boy, we got kicked out of the governor. and. Uh, Last night we were over at such and such a place. And those things I did not participate in because I did not go anywhere at night, did not go into taverns. And so I was not a part of that action. But meanwhile, back in St. Louis, the NAACP was active in trying to get the message to the state level that the time had come for the state to take some action. And that is how the picketing plan went all the way to Jeff City, was to picket the Capitol in behalf of the public accommodations. And then we mobilized the people from the St. Louis and carried them there at a point in time when the legislature was not in session. But we, we did it because the, uh, uh, the seat of government was there, and this brought attention through the news media to the fact that there was a pending bill and blacks in the St. Louis area and others in the state wanted that bill passed. Was it difficult to get it passed? Well, you might have tried it. Uh, I think I'm trying to recall whether he had tried it two terms before I got there. Well, yes, it was difficult. Uh, I remember in the, we need 82 votes in the House to get anything passed, and White thought he had the count of 83. But when the final vote came, uh, I was not there the year before. When the final vote came, he only had 81. One of the ones who promised had not showed up, and one had backed out. 
and he went down into the basement of the Capitol, which is where we used to park auto automobiles at that time. There were some spaces in there. Uh, he went down in the basement and wept like a baby because he thought that he had assured uh, uh, himself that he had the 82 votes. And of course, the year when I went, uh, more work had been done, and there was no problem with getting the 82 votes. I think we just hit it on the button. I can't recall, but I think it was just a pass vote. But whether it's just 82 or 85, if you get the 82, you passed it. So it went through that time. And then, of course, the governor had been primed that he would sign if the legislation passed. What difference did that make for people? Did did they did they rush to go? Did they was it for grassroots people? Did it work for everyone? Was it It took some time for the legal matter to to really weigh in on small towns, small restaurants, and out-of-the-way places. Uh, very frequently uh, during those years, blacks were traveling the highways, and because of an, a breakdown or, or fatigue or whatnot, they would feel the need to stop if there was somebody trying to go from New York out west to California and wanted to stop off somewhere in, in Joplin, Missouri, somewhere and see a long-lost relative, um, that would occasion them to travel the roads, the off-roads of the state. And on those occasions, they might want food. They might need some uh, parts, some service for the car. And it was not an unusual thing for people to tell these horrible stories about being stranded with broken down automobile, walking for hours and getting to a place and finding that uh, the little store that was there, the little restaurant that was serving, supposedly serving the public, refused to let them sit down and have a sandwich or even in some instances refused to serve them the item, sell them, even to sell them the item they might have needed to get themselves started. So it took some time. I would think it took a good um, three to five years before the impact of this law that says it is a violation to turn anyone away because of race, creed, or color. And that had to be a gradual thing because attendant with the fact that it existed was the fact that people had grown up with the idea in their head that it was the right way to proceed. So it took a little time for the public accommodations bill to, to become um, even legislated sometimes. We would drive off the road instead of coming straight back on, on Highway 70. We might take a little shoot off into a, a smaller community and uh, 
asked to get a hamburger. You go in and sit down. Down in the Boot Hill, it was extremely difficult to get that message through. You'd go into a little restaurant and sit there, and there would be dialogue. And sometimes it would seem as though they wanted to flip the coin, who will be courageous or daring enough to go and serve the blacks. So it, it was really, it really was a traumatic experience, I tell you. It was traumatic for you. It must have been extremely difficult for you. Well, those people who were enduring this, all of us who were black, this had been uh, related to us by our relatives. We had grown up with this. So, you see, this was not nearly as traumatic. not nearly as traumatic and I'm trying to get the point over yeah. for us who were living through it it was repulsive and it was frustrating but we knew that it could happen so when it's not a shock to you you are prepared one way or another to to react to it but if young people of this day were to be suddenly confronted with, I would imagine it would cause a kind of panic and a probable violent reaction that no one can anticipate. We were, we were brought up and taught by our parents, you cannot go to that place because you will not be served and it is uh, against the law for the people to serve you. I grew up in a religious home and I made up my mind when I was in high school and I was not going to live through my life with all these same things for white only, for black, and all of the restraints and restrictions that I was trained up that I had to endure. My question was why? Why do I have to endure this? What, did, what, what answers did you The get? answers were it is the law. You must live by the law or you will be arrested and you will go to jail. So of course we did not want to go to jail. In those days jail was a stigmatic thing, you know, and so but I decided that I was going to do in my own way my little battle against segregation. Every sign that I could, without being detected, removed, I removed. And it caused my father great concern because he said, first of all, you, you are invading the, um, the um, business and you can be accused of stealing because I would take a screwdriver, I would take my little girlfriends and they would make a shield around me and I would take a screwdriver and screw the for white only sign out of the wall <laughs> and secrete it in a jacket and we would run giggling from the store. For this was my battle against being segregated, being told, that fountain is for white only. Okay, now there's no sign. Figure out who can drink at this fountain. <laughs> so, oh, he must have gotten gray over you. 
Well, what he did, he put his foot down. No more of this stealing, because he, he put it. He did not accept it as a battle for me to try and achieve equality. He didn't look at it like that. He looked at it plainly as an act of theft. So he put his foot down, and I had really to obey him and stop trying to uh, accumulate the signs. And the amazing thing is that years later, I went back home trying to find, my mother kept them for, I guess I must have accumulated like eight or 10. And my father had destroyed them. And so I don't know whether uh, he destroyed them because they were irritating to him, the four whites only, but I wanted to keep them because uh, I felt that I had done a monstrous thing. I had removed the dis dis uh, desegregation and discrimination. I had removed it from the public's view. So I figured I had done a great thing. How old thing. were you then? Oh, I was in high school. I guess I was like 14, and where 15 were you? in Memphis, Memphis, Tennessee. I think my prize uh, uh, sign was this coach for colored only uh, on a, a train. And it was really difficult to get that one because it was high up on the wall and I had to get the help. There were two or three uh, men there that I enlisted the help because that one was really uh, well placed and securely put into that, but that one was a real, real prize for me. This coach for colored on. <laughs> so that was part of growing up. You started young. Yeah, I started young. I was very, uh, um, I, I was very puzzled and confused. We were a small um, sect, the Seventh-day Adventists, and they had a white church and a black church. The whites would constantly make these visits into the black church. And my question always was, why don't we ever go to their church? And then there would come the old answer. The law, the law does not permit black and white to go to church together. But the whites come and visit. Does the law say they cannot visit? Well, then was a, there was a gray area. And my father never could answer that. You know, was there any law against visiting? Which I didn't think there was. But there was not the invitation from the white that some blacks come to visit in our church some Saturday morning. So I just, I resented it. I resented very much. I refused to participate after I got out of high school. I wasn't, I didn't go to church because I, I felt that this, this is not wrong and this church participates in this and I'm not going to do it. So you went to Jefferson City and changed the laws? I tried. But before that I had gone through an awful lot of the of the stigma, a lot of the evidence of uh, the oppression. I taught in the South, taught in a, in a segregated school in, 
in Mississippi, in Vicksburg. I had to walk right past a brand new uh, brick structure to go to an old antebellum building that had been built during the Civil War, which was relegated to the uh, grammar school children in Vicksburg. And uh, that grated on me. I, I didn't like it at all because the same money that they used with the, uh, uh, what do you call WPA funds to build the new school for whites, they, they could have built a new one for blacks if anyone he cared. If, if I ran some words by you, uh, like um, uh, frustration, anger, bitter, fear, bravery. <laughs> anger. Well, I would say anger would have been my major, uh, my major reaction to all this was anger. Fortunately for me, I was able to uh, find uh, channels uh, through which to to direct the anger, but sometimes it, it turned to physical anger on my part. Oh, and I recall um, I was on en route to, uh, I guess I must have been en route to Arizona. I was in the USO there and had taken a trip to uh, California to uh, have a just a, a vacation on the way back somehow or other we were delayed in El Paso because of troops move troop movement and the fact that there weren't uh, always enough trains for the civilians so we were told we had to stay there in El Paso until they could make up another train uh, oh after many many hours uh, waiting they finally announced that there was a train that would begin loading uh, passengers to continue their trip on back toward the east. And there was an announcement at, at the station that those people who were holding tickets should uh, be permitted to come through the gate first. And so the ticket agents were standing there, those with tickets come through. Now the crowd was a great crush. Uh, people just body to body trying to get onto a train. Uh, I was with a friend. She was brown-skinned. We both had tickets. I held my ticket up and people parted to let me get through to the gate. Because but every fair. time she moved, for, tried to move, they closed back. And I kept looking back, telling Evelyn, come on, come on. And I see that the people were blocking her way. I became so angry that I personally was able to part about three different um, bodies that were blocking her way that I was able to push them aside sufficiently for her to come. Were you at the Red Sea? 
<laughs> it was an unbelievable situation. I was so angry. I said, she is holding a ticket like I am. Let her through. And they didn't know what to do. But then when I made this movement, I knocked them against one another. And there was going to be quite a Donnybrook until some black soldiers who had been witnessing this came up and helped us get through this mass of people. But I became so angry that I was almost able to, to move those Do people. Yeah, because she was just terrified. She was terrified. She didn't have the push in her to go through those people. Did that continue? Did that did that feeling of anger continue as you well, got, the, the feeling of anger exists now. You know, I'm angry now, even today, to see a lot of homeless people. Yeah, there is anger, but it's, and the anger is not at the surface. Yeah, you channel. And the anger is uh, abated in terms of the physical. And I very seldom did show anger physically, but the anger was always in me regarding being considered different and oppressed. I don't mind being considered different, yes. but don't push me back or push me down or hold me down and don't do that to anyone else. This was my attitude that not just me, but anybody else who is being pushed around is wrong. Then in the later latter part of the 60s when you had the Black Power movement and you had people doing things in a different way, whether it be... Uh, you mean the black activists? Black activists, yeah. yes. Okay. Um, how, how did you feel about that? Well, I was, uh, at that point in my life, I was uh, mature enough to realize that, uh, that they could not win with those te techniques. I always... Uh, considered it necessary to fight, but I never uh, wanted to engage in a fight that I could not win and I could not be won. Um, there was no way in my mind that violent black action could ever do anything in terms of achieving uh, emancipation for blacks. Uh, to me, the whole thing was strictly a matter of of annihilation of the black group. And so uh, without weapons, without skills, without uh, terrain uh, to hold as their own, it was a pointless fight, except I understood it. Mm -hmm. I understood it, yeah. and therefore I never publicly disavowed Eldridge, Ke El Eldridge Cleaver and mm -hmm. uh, What's his name? Brown and Rap Brown and uh, the others who, who gained some. Uh, and then I realized also that the media were taking advantage of their uh, anger and their acting out and uh, highlighting it. But those incidents have been happening in the black community ever since I had been there. Periodically, some black would sort of go berserk and but he was not doing it in 
the name of an organized effort. It was a personal anger. And so that was my news for me to see these young black males exerting anger in, an, or in what they considered an organized fashion. Here's, uh, That's the first degree. This is Ivory. I mean, oh yes, Ivory Perry. Yeah. That's Ivory Perry. Uh -huh. And um, he had his own way. Yeah. Ivory was an angry man, angry young man. And, uh, and he found channels to, mm -hmm. and techniques. His was a technique of, of confrontation. Yeah. Do you remember this? You mentioned Percy Green. Oh, uh, yeah, that's the arch. This yeah, that's the arch. <laughs> yeah, Percy conquers the arch. Yes, <laughs> I remember that. Um, and the, uh, this was for the Black Veil Prophet in 68. They marched. Yeah, that was a part of Actions program. Mm -hmm. Um, well, how'd you feel about those kinds of Well, as I said, my uh, feelings about them were that they were uh, a part, and to me they were a natural offshoot of, of the anger that blacks felt about exclusion. And so I was never too perturbed. I, they did not appeal to me to participate in them because I had other things. I mean, you can't uh, consider yourself a writer and trying to uh, articulate things, try and get legislation passed and then jump out in the street and start demonstrating and opening yourself up to interviews that are going nowhere with the press and whatnot. You have to be single-minded in, in what you are trying to accomplish. Each person to his Right. To his yeah. own. So as I said, I had no, no hang-up about My supporters have probably contributed money to some of their, their fundraisers. Um, this was found in your papers at, at UMSL, um, and I think uh, it, it doesn't have a year on it, I don't believe. Um, I uh, that would have been from them. someone who had come up opposing. No, wait a minute. This must be this. Oh, I'm reading that wrong. This must be the uh, um, public against the freedom any of residence. public accommodation, civil rights. Yeah. Um, I think it's a, it's giving everybody the, supposedly giving everybody the choice to do what they want. Yeah, this okay. is the same with Property Owners Association. That must have been freedom, the Freedom of Residence Group that was putting this out. Mm -hmm. Well, you can, it's now a freedom of, no, I don't think so. I vote against any candidate who's, any candidate who supports public accommodation or civil rights. I think this is from a, a, a unpleasant organization. Well, from the St. Louis Property Owners Association, they will have been fighting the freedom of residence. Fighting the freedom, That's what okay. That's what I'm okay. trying to say. Okay. I thought you and, said it uh, had come from the freedom no, of residence. No, no, I mean, this was uh, uh, an anti-freedom right. of choice thing. Right. Let's see, freedom of choice is the bedrock 
upon which all freedoms rest, mm -hmm. uh, that, that is uh, the statement of the of the premise of of the uh, what you call it the pros. The segregation. No, the pro choice people. Uh -huh. But this this part is part that this organization was re rejecting. Mm -hmm. um. I'm trying to recall when that would have been now. I have not given any papers. That would have been in the in the early sixties. Should have been in maybe like sixty, sixty-four. Talk about some people in St. Louis who you feel were um, oh, constituted and, and were really important to the civil rights movement. Oh, along with that, wait, you, you and your husband started a newspaper. Right. You were a busy woman. Well, I was 60, the late woman for the paper. Uh -huh. I would uh, scout up the, uh, some of the photos, some of the materials that we went in and I would do typing and he was the uh, editor and makeup person. I would distribute the paper okay. and I had built a crew. That was one of the ways I was able to get elected, that I had gotten into the uh, community and had an outlet for that paper. and. Uh, Although I ran in a in a district that was uh, secluded from the whole city, it was just a, a legislative district, which was a small portion cut from the city. But the contacts that I had made in projecting the paper and getting people to help me sell it and promoted it, those were the people I called into action when I decided to run. It actually was the paper, really, which got me elected. But unfortunately, getting elected caused me to have to leave my work along with the paper. paper because we no sooner had one coming off of the daily press of machines than we were starting to put the next week together. How Finally, he did it only just once a month. Why did you feel there was a need for another newspaper? Because of the qua uh, the quality of uh, of the uh, the reading matter did not appear to my husband to reflect the uh, true image of the community that there were so many things going on and mm -hmm. certainly so many. Um, elements of newsworthy activity that the other papers were not covering. For the most part, they were covering social uh, activities, whatever, um, what is it, um, criminal activity that would make the highlight. One of the papers still going, just mainly uh, reporting crime and, and criminal activity and that kind of thing. And so it was the need in Galloway's mind to reflect what basically was truly going on in terms of the 
blacks in their struggle to uh, gain uh, an equal status. How long did your paper run? Oh, we were only able to keep that paper going about two years on our own. We went into the paper with a young man who had been putting out the paper, went in with on the basis of changing the, the context of his paper. But uh, we could not get along with him on blood. <laughs> he always wanted yeah, his front page to be bloody and scandalous. Well, that's what you were trying to get away from. But he insisted that was the only way you could sell it, that you got to have somebody uh, meshed here, an automobile accident. It's mm -hmm. got to be bizarre mm -hmm. on the front page or else people won't buy it. And of course, we kept insisting that we, we don't want to have to rely on sales. Newspaper sales will never keep your newspaper going. Mm -hmm. But that is the way they kept their paper going. Well, I was going Sales to... of newspapers, they didn't get too much advertising. I was going to ask you about uh, who constituted, what people constituted the civil rights movement in St. Louis in the 60s. Oh, I don't know. Let's see. There were many people. I would think the first person who hops right out in, in memory is the uh, the late Henry Winfield Wheeler, who had been like the voice of the of the uh, of the oppressed black long before I came into St. Louis. Mr. Wheeler was a an agitator, constantly uh, highlighting uh, the weaknesses of the of the community. He would take on things like the American theater, picket them. Uh, he would picket the post office because there weren't enough black. And Mr. Wheeler would picket if there were no one but himself. Did he go up through the 60s, though? Mr. Wheeler went up through the 60s because I took his place. <laughs> he, uh, had been elected to the legislature, then he got sick. I see. And uh, that would have been the um, the year I ran for the post was 1960. And he lived for a couple of years after that, but he was ill. So and he could not run again. Place. And his was the district that I went in. The 81st. But he Those had big been, shoes, big shoes. Yeah, he had been uh, in St. Louis, the foremost voice, and the one outstanding individual who was espousing all of these uh, thrusts that later became uh, very important and, and, and popular with people to espouse. He was articulating oppression and discrimination before people were willing to admit because people, blacks were hiding because they could make an adaptation and pretending everything was okay but Mr. Wheeler was their conscious he would remind them that you haven't gotten anywhere that you still have, have not you have yet to become an equal person and equal citizen 
So he was one first. Now you want to know some other people. Uh, Mr. Wheeler slowed down and uh, got ill after he went to the legislature. He began, so I think we would call it Alzheimer now. Then he uh, eventually died. Uh, I'm trying to recall what other there was the late Senator McNeil, who had been a, a forerunner in in the battle in terms of uh, a strong fight during the war years for uh, for for black participation in the in the um, jobs uh, that had to do with the mobilization for war war jobs, and then you had. Uh, all uh, people who, uh, whose uh, names come to my mind, you had a Joseph W.B. Clark, who eventually was uh, an alderman, and uh, you had some ministers who had indicated and, and, and demonstrated a concern, the late Reverend uh, Cook, uh, Reverend Frank Madison Reed. Uh, I hate to call, start calling these names because unless I call all of them, I'm likely to make somebody angry, but these no, are names no. that just jump out That's right. as I try to think back to the period when I came here. You know, what names when were... When did you come here? I came in 52. 52. And so I'm trying to recall the names that were ringing out then. Well, let, let, me, um, let me help you by just asking you a question. Um, everybody you've named has been men. Well, at that point in time, I'm sure there were many women but I didn't know them. In the, in the, in, in through the early, whole 60s? Oh, no, not through the whole yes. 60s. Okay. I'm talking about the time. I, I had started in my own mind trying to think of people uh, that were active when I came into the scene. Oh, no, as we moved through the 60s, when you, I just have to, you know, automatically you call Frankie Freeman and Margaret Bush Wilson and, uh, uh, what is her name? Um, she is uh, still active. Marion Oldham. Uh, those are names that, that come to mind. Plus, there were some elderly persons who had identified with the uh, with the struggle. Uh, or Malone, I, I was dating yes. last night. Mm -hmm. She had been active and, and was active in all of these movements that uh, were designed to to relieve the, the pressure of uh, a segregated world. Uh, she was at a grass, grassroots level? Or Malone? Mm -hmm. Well, Or Malone's level was through the labor. So I guess you would call her a grassroots person, but uh, her efforts 
were mainly within the labor movement. So in other words, if there were going to be a demonstration uh, for um, public accommodations or for job action, then you would get in touch with Aura and she would then mobilize some support from the labor ranks. Uh, Aura was a low-key person, but she was reliable in terms of support. She's supportive. So everything that we have been mentioning, the Jefferson Bank and the Pickett's uh, uh, Public Accommodations, Aura was somewhere in that scene. But she was not foremost, and she was not uh, jumping in front of a camera. And unfortunately, uh, cameras sometimes don't pick out anyone except the acting out person. Yeah. That is how well, Percy Green got into yeah. most of, I mean, Ivory Perry. I keep yeah. calling him Percy Green. <laughs> Percy Green and Ivory were so similar in their, uh, mm -hmm. in their approaches to fighting segregation that I, I get them into mixed when I speak of them, but I know them distinctly well uh, to difference. Did you did you know Bill Bailey? Yeah, I knew Bill Bailey. And Bill Bailey was along in the period with Ivory Perry and I um three. And Bill Bailey was um I would say a vital part. Mm -hmm. Vital part of the of the demonstration at the bank. Um, <clears throat> thinking in terms of some of the people that don't get in front of the cameras, men and women. <clears throat> well, it's not that they don't get in front no, I, of them, but, but it's just a question. Yeah, I, I, we have to differentiate are, somewhere. That they are just calmly. Yeah, I understand. And, and uh, like children in a classroom, some of them are acting out children mm -hmm. and will be wiggling and twisting yeah. and others.